Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm delighted to talk to Sabur Ahmed. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you for having me, bro. Great to see you. Um, Sabur is the author of the forthcoming book, A Failed Hypothesis. Uh, he's a public speaker, debater and writer. He focuses on engaging with the, the new Muslim ideas uh, and has also traveled extensively across the globe teaching Muslims how to articulate Islam to non-Muslims. Sabor specializes in the philosophy of science, very interesting subject, with a focus on Darwin's theory of evolution. Uh, he has debated many prominent atheists over the years, including professors, atheist activists, internet personalities on the topics of science, God's existence, and Darwinism. He's also given talks across North uh, America, Latin America, Australia, and Africa. Sabor has a, a BSc in engineering, uh, an MA and PG cert in philosophy from Birkbeck College at the University of London. And he's currently specializing in the philosophy of biology, a fascinating area. Now, um, Sabur, just a, a kind of an opening question, if I may. Well, why did you decide to focus uh, on Darwin's theory of evolution? Yeah, so firstly, thank you for having me on Blogging Theology. I love this channel and, mashallah, I'm very happy to see that it's growing. Um, and uh, there's actually translations as well. And people yeah. are really enjoying this content. Yeah. So um, I'm glad to be on this platform. The thing is, when it comes to a topic like biology, it's something which I think we should all be interested in. Allah mm. points towards nature. Allah points towards us looking within ourselves and within the horizons. And from a young age, I was interested in anything biological. I used to actually collect beetles, which I only really? found out many uh, years later. Darwin used to as well. Oh, really? Yeah. He, he was a beetle fan as well. <laughs> he was. He was. And... Um, this particular area, as you know, Paul, um, you've been involved in Dawa for a very long time. It pops up again and again in discussions. So at some point, I thought, okay, let me look into this because there are some available answers, some of answers which are very popular in the Muslim community. Um, and they don't really work that well academically. They may work at a popular level. Um, and then obviously there's the issue of the link between the new atheist movement and evolutionary theory. So you yeah. have, you know, popular uh, science writers like Richard Dawkins, who speaks about, you know, the central argument in the God delusion is essentially linked to Darwinism and how Darwinism undermines the design argument. And then you get other people like Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris, and everyone's using evolutionary theory to, you know, reinforce their atheism. So I wanted to have a solid answer on this. I was actually inspired by a paper that Hamza wrote many years back. Uh, is this, is this Hamza, Hamza Zortzis, you mean? Hamza Zortzis. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. So whenever, that's the only Hamza I refer to. Oh, really? I know, I know several Hamzas, you know, but anyway. Oh, yeah. that's true. That's true. <laughs> but usually within the, you know, uh, he's been my mentor for 13 something years. So wow. I, I mention him in good light, mashallah, all the time, at least no, publicly. He's <laughs> no, he's an amazing man. I used to meet him last year and he's an extraordinary man. Sorry, I'm sorry. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Hamza's paper was fantastic. It was basically about a different approach, an approach I had not seen before, something, Paul, which I'm sure you would appreciate as an academic that it was refreshing. It was not, okay, let's take this, um, this theory and let's try and tackle it by pointing out certain problems. 
Um, there's issues with gradualism, there's issues with the fossil record, there's issues with how homology is constructed or phylogenetic, um, you know, reconstruction is done. No, it's just to do with epistemically what can science lead to, what is uh, the epistemic way of the Quran, and science can actually change. It is a philosophy of science angle on yes. evolutionary theory, exactly. which I had not seen before. Mm -hmm. And that inspired me, and um, I started researching, and he was encouraging me. I was I was here in um, Ayer at the time, and he was telling me, look, you, you know, carry on. And then we, I traveled with him to Lebanon in 2015, mm. and we were in the hotel together, and he just said, okay, you need to basically, you're here on this trip, you need to give a talk on um, evolution and, and, and cover this area. And I, I think he gave me something like a day or two days, or he just told me that there and then just do it, get, yeah, you know, yeah. don't, don't stop. So I put it together hastily, um, whatever I was researching, and it's the first time I delivered it. And then there was the failed hypothesis workshop uh, later on that year, which he encouraged me to uh, do a workshop on. And then at that point, what basically happened was there's some online atheists who uh, started seeing this content and uh, started responding and, and, and trying right. to basically attack the narrative. And that's where I got challenged by Aaron Ra um, in 2016, right? So he thought this was nonsense, this new approach or whatever it was. Um, he took one of my talks from Coventry University and uh, he put it up and he's just completely dismissive of everything. Mm. So at that point, um, you know, Hamza basically said, look, go debate this guy. I said, I can't, you know, I need to, I need to prepare. It's going to take time because look, he does know his stuff, mm -hmm. right? Although he looks like something from a science, a sci-fi movie, right? The guy knows his stuff. He's actually pretty intelligent. Um, he's, he's, you know, in the new atheist sort of um, uh, range of speakers, uh, he is somebody that does focus on biological evolution. So. Hamza really pushed me to go for the debate. And obviously, if you're going to prepare for a debate, you, you have to put all of your energy into it and you have to research further and further. And Alhamdulillah, the debate went well. And then after, after that, uh, after his initial encouragement, um, Hamza then pushed me to academically continue with this. Um, so I studied some modules related to evolution and philosophy at Birkbeck. Um, and then Alhamdulillah, you know, over time just started debating other people <laughs> on this topic and uh, yeah. it wasn't planned it just happened sort of organically yeah i, I know the feeling <laughs> um but how would you summarize your approach to the topic what was distinctive about sabor's approach to this uh, very contentious issue sure i mean it's hamza's approach which i just sort of he put the skeleton together and i decided to reinforce the premises right and it's essentially that we should not be tackling uh, an evolutionary evolutionary theory any everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Evolutionary theory, including Darwinism, using science alone. What we should be doing is looking at it from a philosophy point of view and looking at the philosophical assumptions and presuppositions behind it. 
And then once we epistemically weigh this theory using the philosophy of science, then we look at something like the Quran and we do an epistemic weighing. And then we say, okay, where they conflict, we have room to say, well, epistemically here, we should believe the Quran over evolutionary theory. Mm-hmm. At the same time, if you were not to involve the Quran and just stick to evolutionary science on its own and use philosophy of science to uh, look at it, to to allow that to be the lens by which you color the data, then you can come up with solutions which did not exist previously. So Alhamdulillah, um, when I started doing this, when I started following his methodology, um, I, I can happily say, and he wouldn't mind me saying this, that I, I far surpassed the knowledge he had on the topic because I decided to look into the sciences when he was just focusing on the philosophy side. Right. And then I tried to update him on the stuff. And to be honest, um, he wasn't that interested in the science because the philosophy was solid. Um, but he did make a, a very strong point, which is, look, the science is just there to reinforce the philosophical concepts, uh, w- which is why I, in, in my talks and lectures and debates and other places, I say, well, even if I don't have these scientific examples, which I'm going to be using, the philosophical argument is still watertight. So his point at the end of the day is uh, still valid. Okay, well, what, is, what, what are some of the assumptions underlying uh, the understanding of the theory of evolution? Well, what, what's, what's implicit there in a worldview sense that might, might not be stated explicitly in the scientific narrative, do you think? There's many things. Right. Um, firstly, take something very obvious that's, that's used all the time, which is um, a rival theory, a rival scientific theory like intelligent design um, is not science. And it's not science because there's no scientist in the world who is publishing peer-reviewed papers on intelligent design. Intelligent design is not to our universities. It's not accepted as science. Okay, that sounds pretty good, right? That sounds solid. Okay, so no scientist is using uh, intelligent design to make inferences. Therefore, intelligent design as a theory is uh, pseudoscience or is invalid or it's not even, it's a non-starter. Well, the presupposition here, which is not being mentioned, is that of methodological naturalism, because methodological naturalism states that whenever we look at scientific phenomena, we are only going to refer to natural causes, natural effects, natural uh, processes. So from the outset, intelligent design, anything immaterial is ruled out. So it's like somebody coming into this room and saying, well, all of the colors of Uh, any shade of red we're going to throw out this room right anything that's red and then when everything's thrown out that's red and on the front door it says red is not allowed then when everyone's sitting around the person says well the color red doesn't exist well that's kind of rich because from the beginning um what the darwinists have done is they've said you can't have intelligent design enter the scientific domain because of methodological naturalism and then they say well where's your peer-reviewed papers so you can't have it. I mean, that's one presupposition, but there's many others. So hang on. Is there a distinction between um, methodological naturalism, the idea that you Im- you employ for the purposes of your research that you are doing, the assumption that only natural causes can be considered efficacious or a factor in whatever phenomenon you're exactly, as compared to metaphysical naturalism, which asserts that only natural material causality is real at all. Uh, yeah. in, in in the world, in the universe, in reality, with a big R, you know. And it seems I get confused when I hear Richard Dawkins. I, I wonder, is he, a, is he practicing methodological naturalism or is he practicing metaphysical naturalism? He seems to be doing both. But are, are you saying there's actually, there is a distinction 
One is yeah. philosophy, the other is science. Yeah. Um, I mean, could you kind of just clarify the yeah. relationship between these two, these two kind of worldviews that we're dealing with here? Sure. I mean, Paul, you, you put it in a very concise way. That is the right definition. You have metaphysical naturalism, you have methodological naturalism. Methodological naturalism is just a methodology you're going to use just to get to the conclusions that you want to arrive at. So you want to only refer to things which are natural in order to describe a phenomenon. So that's methodological naturalism. A methodological naturalist can be someone who believes in God. They can be someone that believes in something supernatural. But for the sake of science, they are sticking to methodological naturalism. Philosophical naturalism, metaphysical naturalism, as you called it, is a philosophical position which is much stronger than methodological naturalism. It's saying there is no God. Methodological naturalism does not say there's no God. It says for in the scientific domain, we're not going to talk about God. Metaphysical naturalism says there is no God. Now, here's the link. Metaphysical naturalism would lead to the idea of uh, methodological naturalism, because, of course, if there is no God, then, of course, in science, you're not going to mention God. However, it's not true the other way around. It's not true that if you're a methodological naturalist, you're going to be a philosophical, metaphysical naturalist. Now, you mentioned Dawkins and how he blurred the line here, and I'm glad you noted that because new atheists like Massimo Piglucci, who is a philosopher of science at, um, in, I think, New York City University, City University of New York. Um, so being a new atheist, he still criticized Richard Dawkins for this point because he said, this is a fallacy. It is a fallacy to believe that metaphysical naturalism and methodological naturalism is the same thing. They are not the same thing. So metaphysical naturalism and methodological naturalism being conflated is the reason why new atheism is quite powerful. Because new atheism is, I, I mean, we, we can be pretty sure that um, the mantle of science is being misused in order to promote metaphysical naturalism when its description is only to methodological naturalism. Now, do you think, I mean, this is a more of a, an empirical question. Do you think most practicing scientists in the West are aware of this important distinction you're making? Or do they just simply, they're so focused on the minutiae of their specialist area, whether it be, you know, micro this or quantum mechanics, they're just not aware of it. Or are they actually aware of this distinction? And if they are, are they cautious about crossing over from naturalism, methodological naturalism to metaphysical naturalism in their work? And they're just confined to a humble methodological naturalism, if you sort of mean. That, that's an excellent question. Um, I don't know the answer, um, mm -hmm. but I, I, I'll just give a few indications of my interaction with, with uh, academics. Firstly, I think the vast majority of academics are not interested in these types of discussions. They really don't have a dog in this fight. They they are not focused on, you know, new atheism and all this stuff that's happening. I mean, the way that Richard Dawkins and these guys uh, project themselves is as if they represent these scientists. And as you know, um, it's it's never homogenous like that. In fact, there was a survey that was done in the UK. Um, scientists were being asked about their perceptions uh, of certain things, and Richard Dawkins came out in a negative light. So, look, firstly. The vast majority of academics are not interested in these discussions. They are, like you said, they're focused on, you know, biochemistry. They're focused on anatomy. They're focused on paleontology, on biogeography, bioinformatics. They're just focused on their, and not even those areas, niches within those areas. Yes, niches and niches and niches. <laughs> yes, it's very true. That's it. That's it. And philosophers are interested in these. But again, a lot of philosophers, they are not involved in these debates. So mm. these are fringes. And I would say that, 
in my interaction at least, I haven't found that they are literate when it comes to philosophy of science. And they don't need to be. Scientists really don't need to be. Well, mm -hmm. they do need to be if they're going to be making philosophical arguments using science, which is what Richard Dawkins does. So people like him need to. Now, when people like Michael Roos, who is an atheist, and, yeah. you know, inshallah, I'm, I'm sure we, we can get him on your channel as well. Um, you know, he, he says that when he reads The God Delusion, it makes him embarrassed to be an atheist. Yeah. The reason he's embarrassed is because Richard Dawkins is making... Um, philosophical points using scientific premises but the scientific premises are not being used in the correct way from a uh, in terms of uh, f philosophically so it sounds like philosophy it sounds like science is being used as as the premises of those philosophical arguments but it's actually not and this is one of the things that Elliot Sober another academic who inshallah can join your channel uh, who's an atheist he's a philosopher of biology he also points out that Darwinian theory doesn't say there is no God in the same way Newtonian theory doesn't say there is no God. These are things which need additional philosophical premises which are not really there. And that's what Richard Dawkins does. Um, he, he makes arguments using Darwinism and he doesn't justify it philosophically. And that is the real issue here that a lot of scientists, they don't know that their good names being used um, by people like Richard Dawkins as if he represents them. And he's making yeah. arguments which are not scientific. Well, this is something that struck me looking at the, an older generation of atheists, so often British, actually, people like uh, Bertrand Russell, you know, the mathematician and phenomenal genius. Um, and, uh, and although he was a committed atheist, passionate atheist, um, in, in his articulation of his atheism vis-a-vis -vis science, he seemed to be much more, well, he would be because he was a philosopher as well, uh, uh, um, philosophically informed uh, about the issues than someone like yeah. Dawkins is. And it seems to be there's been a devolution in atheist discourse, if I can use that expression, from the, the heights of Richard um, uh, Bertrand Russell and uh, to the likes of the new atheists, of course. And there's a wonderful discussion, isn't there? You can see it on YouTube. I think it was a radio discussion between Bertrand Russell and... Um, Frank Copleston uh, from Heathrop College, my old alma mater, um, who was a Jesuit priest uh, and and defended, who was def the latter defending the existence of God and the former obviously arguing against. And to see the the, um, the extraordinary uh, ability of these two individuals to engage at a very high level philosophically with the issues without yeah. Russell, the atheist, denouncing the Christian, because Russell, oh, the other guy was a Christian, as some kind of you know idiot or unworthy opponent. No, there was a serious engagement. I don't get that serious engagement with the likes of the new atheists. They're very if I may use the word, arrogant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the way you've summarized it is, 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 the correct, is the correct sort of summary of what is going on in terms of how their level academically is at the level that the other atheists were at previously. Mm -hmm. I mean, even take someone who's, who's not, who definitely wasn't an atheist, right? Um, Charles Darwin. In Nick Spencer's book, Darwin and God, Nick Spencer shows how Darwin was not acting like these new atheists. He wasn't so dismissive of God. He wasn't saying that his theory leads to the idea that there is no God. And he's being basically misrepresented. And you find this many times. You find this, um, you know, with people like Michael Roos, who I do consider as somebody who's a respectable atheist, and he's a Darwinist, yeah. but he would not go as far as doing what these new atheists are doing. For example, he happily admits that naturalism is a faith right he not he, he's happy to admit that this idea that there is no god everything is um you know material 
this is a faith but new atheists want to say it's not a faith it's, it's proven it's, right? they say it's science it's not it's faith. Science, it's, yeah. and indeed yeah. thomas nagel the uh, professor of philosophy i think new york maybe the same university in new york i'm not sure he is an atheist and he's written a book was it mind and cosmos uh, right yeah a very short book boy is a powerful book um and uh, but you know he criticizes darwinian evolution there for not being not being coherent and having internal contradictions and you read it and you think wow you're right um but he's an atheist um so, he, yep. so even an atheist but there are uh, yeah this is a good point to make there are contemporary atheists like Bruce and, and uh, uh um nagel who, nagel um who, who are in, in a way intellectually much more open and, and honest than yeah. some others and even Nagel, what's interesting about him is in the same book, he's quite open to the idea of an intelligent designer, mm. even though he doesn't believe in God. And he makes a solid point that the idea that life came from inorganic to organic and then evolved to the way that we are today. He said mm. this is an assumption governing the scientific project rather than a well-confirmed scientific hypothesis. And he got slated for saying these types of things mm. because what he was essentially it's saying a, is a, that it's an intellectual heresy, isn't it? With, yeah. There are lots of heresies in our era. If you criticize certain forms of LGBT, whatever, and scientific heresies, I mean, I thought we'd gone beyond the age of heresies and we're an era of free inquiry and open debate. But sadly, it's not the case. In, culturally and scientifically, lots of taboo areas we're not allowed to talk about publicly. Yeah. And it's interesting you, you mention you know, the word heresy because it kind of reminds me of the interaction between E.O. Wilson. Mm -hmm. And um, Richard Dawkins, so E.O. Wilson, again, he hasn't got a religious bone in his body, he passed away recently, he's a fantastic scientist. Mm -hmm. He was having this back and forth with Richard Dawkins, right? And Richard Dawkins was trying to say, well, here's all these scientists that agree with me. And he said, well, if we were to go by the majority, then we'd still believe that the sun was going around the earth, right? We'd still believe in these types of heretical ideas. And what's interesting is they ended up on BBC Newsnight. I'm not sure if you know about this a few years no, back. Um, so E.O. Wilson was being interviewed on BBC Newsnight about his dispute with Richard Dawkins. And the dispute was basically this. Richard Dawkins published the idea of, uh, popularized the idea rather of the selfish gene. He didn't come up with it. Uh, that was Hamilton. But he popularized it, right? So once he popularized it, the selfish gene idea, it was so central to his career, to his ego, to his persona. And group selection, which is a uh, you know rival to the selfish gene idea, was being proposed by E.O. Wilson. So E.O. Wilson was giving all this scientific evidence for it. He's been researching ants for many, many years. Mm -hmm. um, and once E.O. Wilson published his stuff and he's coming up with this, Richard Dawkins was battling him out on Twitter and is getting really a, a bit uh, childish um, from the side of Dawkins. Um, and what happened with E.O. Wilson when he came on Newsnight, he's very dignified. And he basically was asked, well, what about this dispute between yourself and Richard Dawkins? And he goes, there's no dispute between myself and Richard Dawkins because my disputes are with real scientists. Uh, <laughs> Richard Dawkins is a science journalist. Um, so there's no dispute here. Ooh. And what's interesting is when I looked into group selection and I looked into um, the selfish gene idea and the contemporary works that are taking place, Richard Dawkins was completely out of touch. He was out of touch with what is happening in terms of these discussions and the other thing which i found very surprising is that he was not only out of touch when it comes to group selection he's out of touch when it comes to the tree of life so for example there's an online um some sort of uh 
No, it's not online. It's actually at the University of Arizona, I believe. There was a, a meeting that was set up between Craig Venter, um, who's a geneticist, uh, another atheist, and Richard Dawkins. And Craig Venter was basically challenging the tree of life and talking about the bush of life. And Richard Dawkins started basically questioning him, him on that. And Venter was sticking to his ground. When I looked into this, there are a lot of discussions that the tree of life concept is actually wrong. And scientists are now talking about the forest of life, orchid of life, bush of life. And again, Richard Dawkins was caught unaware publicly, being unaware of these things. So, 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 so the point is that Dawkins' um, uh, understanding of science is out of date. It's yeah. obsolete. I mean, to be fair, he's been retired for some time now. He's not a practicing scientist as far as I know. He's retired. But for, for, so I suppose your, your point would be that he continues to assert the, the current status of his own thoughts, even though, in fact, science has moved on completely from where he was. Yeah, there is a there is a part of that, but there's also something else, which is that he's trained in zoology, and mm. his area of speciality is that. So it's not genetics, it's not bioinformatics, it's not paleontology. And what's interesting is Dennis Noble, uh, another uh, well-known academic, he recently had a discussion with Richard Dawkins. Finally, Richard Dawkins agreed to have a discussion with Dennis Noble because Dennis Noble is another academic at Oxford, another um, evolutionary heavyweight. And Dennis Noble totally disagrees with Richard Dawkins with the selfish gene idea and whatnot. And they just had a discussion going back a few weeks. And that discussion, which you can actually see a clip of it on YouTube, but you actually have to go to the website to see the full of it. You can see he is outmatched. He is, he is caught unawares. He doesn't know what he's doing. Dennis Noble was actually the, um, the supervisor for Richard Dawkins' thesis, right? So he's he's senior in rank. Oh, him? And I know. What you mean. Yes, no. He he he's much more sympathetic to matters of faith and immaterialism and so on. Yeah, indeed. He is. He is. I just, I just want to ask. Is it something you said about ten minutes ago? I meant to pick it up on, but I didn't. You made a very tiny point, and I thought you've got to expand on this. You said that Charles Darwin was not an atheist and he's been popularly misrepresented as being some kind of unbelieving atheist. So what did he believe? Well, what, what, what's the issue with Charles Darwin? What were his thoughts about faith, God, design and purpose? Yeah. And so Charles Darwin has been grossly misunderstood mm. historically. There were people around him who were more atheistic, far more inclined towards that type of militant atheism than he was. And throughout the decades, he was misrepresented in Nick Spencer's excellent book, and I hope, inshallah, he comes on your uh, blog on blogging theology as well. He argues decisively that Richard Dawkins was not an atheist, and Richard Dawkins was, in fact, a Charles Darwin. So you said Dawkins, J Charles Darwin. Ch Ch Charles Darwin, yeah. yeah. So, we, we, so, we know that Dawkins is an atheist, but yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. yeah. 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 So Ch Charles Darwin, he was a theist, then he became a deist. Right. Uh, so he believed in God, but he didn't believe in revelation. When yeah. he first went to the Royal Society here in London in 1858, he believed in God. When a year later he published in 1859, he believed in God. He believed in God until that point. Now, according because obviously there's different opinion in terms of his biographies, but according to one opinion which I follow is that the last 10 years of his life, he became agnostic because of the problem of evil and suffering, not because his theory leads to atheism. In fact, he explicitly said that his theory doesn't lead to atheism and you can be a theist and believe in this theory. He was, he was in correspondence with his friends and he was writing these private letters because what the Darwinists would say and the atheists would say is, oh, he was only publicly professing his belief in God because he thought he was going to get lynched or whatever. 
Um, it doesn't make sense for two, from, from two perspectives. The first perspective is he's already coming up with heresies, right? He's, he's saying, you know, Adam and Eve don't exist and, you know, we all evolved. And secondly, he's writing letters to people like Asa Gray, which are not meant for the public, who's his friend in America, right? So he's saying to Asa Gray and others that you can be a theist and believe in my theory. There's nothing in my theory which uh, is atheistic. And also that in his wildest fluctuations, he was never an atheist. He explicitly says this. So Nick Spencer's excellent book, um, anybody who has doubts um, about, you Walter, know, what how... was Nick Spencer's book called, by the way? Darwin and God. Oh, Darwin and God. Okay, I'm just making Darwin a note of it here. Okay, because I haven't read it yet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, it's just the, the problem. The problem that people like Darwin, obviously, he lived in Victoria in England. At that time, it was a very, very Christian country. You know, Victoria was uh, Queen Victoria, very keen on... Uh, promoting the, the Bible around the world uh, through imperialism, of course, uh, in India and elsewhere. But the problem of evil, in my opinion, has always been the Achilles heel of Christianity. Um, and it still is today. You know, how, how if God is just a loving God, just loves us, how do we understand cancer, tornadoes, death, disease, suffering, etc.? Islam is completely different from that. And it has, and has, I've discovered, many powerful, compelling answers to these particular issues which christianity doesn't have and i wish it had i wish it would nick the answers from islam and 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 bolster its credentials but it chooses not to so it makes sense in a way that darwin as a very thoughtful man would also have problems with the problem of evil and suffering as you just said but not because he was a scientist but because he was you know a nominal uh, christian uh, or living in a christian country where the alternative solutions were simply not around, uh, actually, in yeah. Victoria, England. You wouldn't have had a copy. They wouldn't have had the Sapiens Institute that they could pop down the road and listen to. You know, it didn't exist. Um, yeah. So we're a better place now to have compelling, uh, in my view, compelling answers to these problems uh, in, in England, at least, uh, for, for the public to, to take advantage of. Yeah, and on the minimum, what we could say as well, and we, we get this when we uh, look through Spencer's work, is he was willing to engage with Christians. He was mm. actually, a fr he was friends with a local pastor. Uh, he was willing to have discussions, theological discussions. He was not treating God in the way that these new atheists are treating God right. as something completely right. outlandish and ridiculous. Right. He was willing to have these discussions. In fact, what we find is that um, when his book was being used as not used, but when, when his book was being praised by certain people who believed in God, and uh, there's, mm. I, maybe it was Asa Gray or someone else who described that the idea that God created one cell and that cell evolved into all of life today, or God created individual species, the argument was that it doesn't take away from God's nobility because it's God at the end of the day. Darwin was impressed with words like that, and he was happy to actually take on those statements rather than reject them. So what we find is that there was a respectable discourse. There was mm -hmm. a respect, a mutual respect. Um, and many of these published works, like The God Delusion, I think Charles Darwin would have just completely just distanced himself from. He, he would okay, have said another, another alleged atheist is often, I've seen this constantly on Twitter, uh, Albert Einstein. Of course, Einstein was an atheist. Well, he wasn't, was he? Didn't he reject this label repeatedly? I don't know why people thought he was, but I, I, but he wasn't a. Uh, I mean, he was of the Jewish faith uh, originally, but he didn't. He certainly was not a. He didn't believe in the God of of Jewish Torah, but he wasn't an atheist. Is that right? I'm not sure about uh, right. Einstein. I haven't looked into him, but I do remember reading the God Delusion and um, 
Dawkins was using his best to shoehorn Einstein into some sort of atheism. Um, but the the statements that I've seen from Einstein seem to contradict that. Yeah, but I, I can't say more on this. Okay, no, that, that's fine. But let's move on then to what's called intelligent design theory. I mean, what, what is intelligent design, and and should Muslims, uh, specifically Muslims, should should we agree with this uh, idea, which seems to be particularly associated with uh, Christian um, thinkers in the United States, uh, people like yeah. Stephen Meyer, of course, who's probably the most famous ID intelligent design proponent in America. Um, is this something that Muslims? Because a lot of Muslims seem very keen on this. Is this something we should just follow and take advantage of, do you think? Yeah. I, these are very good questions. So I'll answer the first one. And yeah. then if I forget to answer the second one, you can remind me, Paul. So the first thing is, what is intelligent design theory? Intelligent design theory is the idea that there are certain features of biological organisms and the universe from which we can infer intelligent design. Now, that's all the theory says. It doesn't say anything about universal common ancestry because you have intelligent design proponents who accept universal common ancestry like Michael Behe and you have others like Paul Nelson who don't accept it. So right. it doesn't make a claim about genealogy. It doesn't say anything about phylogenetic reconstruction. That it's, it's neutral. It also doesn't say there is a God. This is what's important. Mm. Um, it's often described as a religious theory. It is not. All it's simply saying is there are certain features from which we can infer design. So there are a few components which I think are worth uh, discussing. Um, the first component is inference to the best explanation, which is something used historically. Uh, Maya um, on your channel, I'm sure he went into some detail about this. There is the concept of irreducible uh, complexity and specified complexity. So these three components together make up intelligent design theory. Intelligent design can actually be subscribed to even if you don't believe in God, even if you're agnostic. Um, there's one intelligent design um, proponent, uh, David Belinsky, agnostic oh, yes. background. Um, there's also uh, another one whose name I've forgotten, uh, Michael something. But there's quite a few of them. You can find them on Evolution News. Um, and what you find is you get people who are Jewish, Muslim, Christian, agnostic, someone like Nagel, outright atheist, but open to the idea of intelligent design. True. So intelligent design is a minimalistic idea. Now, the pushback against it is it's not science and there's no scientific evidence for it. And uh, it not being science, we covered before. It, it's, it's a circular argument because they deny it through methodological naturalism and then they say that you can't do it. Um, but let's let's look into some of these concepts. Um, so inference to the best explanation, irreducible complexity and uh, specified complexity. Yeah. Okay. okay. No, so, 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 this, is, this is the most recent book by Stephen Meyer, of course, Return of the God Hypothesis, three scientific discoveries that reveal the mind behind the universe. So he, he is arguably the most public visible face of intelligent design um, in the United States. And there's a couple of Nobel Prize winners on the back who seem to like it. But anyway, sorry yeah. to interrupt. And he's been on this channel and you can perhaps yeah. put the link for people to watch. I was very happy to see him on here. So Myers uses the argument from inference to the, uh, he uses inference to the best explanation to infer design. Now, inference to the best explanation has always been used throughout history. Now, what's important about inference to the best explanation is that the inference to the best explanation doesn't need an explanation. So if somebody was to look at 
say the the central argument of the god delusion one of the premises says that to postulate a designer is problematic because we don't know where the designer comes from so it's an infinite regress therefore you can't infer design now inference to the best explanation doesn't work like that if there is a phenomenon we want to describe and there's a cause we want to infer that cause could be whatever it is cause x if cause x can describe this phenomena in a way that's comprehensive, in a way that's simple, in a way that fits certain scientific criteria, then that cause X doesn't need an explanation. This is very important. What Richard Dawkins basically says is it does, but that's not the way inference to the best explanation works. Um, now, what's interesting is even though, like I said before, intelligent design is not allowed, right, um, from, from, uh, uh, from a scientific perspective, what we find is that intelligence is being referred to when it suits the <laughs> dominance, right? So Francis Crick, he uh, won the Nobel Prize for the structure uh, for discovering the structure of uh, uh, DNA. And he had, yes, yes, uh, uh, and um, uh, alongside Watson, and he yeah. also had the sequence hypothesis, which was confirmed a decade later. So a fantastic scientist. Now, at the time of Darwin, the idea was that the cells are extremely simple like jello there's hardly anything yeah, there yeah. and you know this type of thing what francis crick and james watson discovered is the cell is incredibly complex it's like london at its busiest time with trains and trams and buses yeah. and people and buildings and construction so francis crick could not explain how the origin of life could be if the cells are so complex why are they so complex it couldn't be explained through this uh, very simplistic understanding that spontaneous generation and the abiogenesis sort of ideas that were prevalent so he inferred that they could have been an advanced civilization that seeded life on earth and this he uh, you know there's somewhere in this office is the book life itself so um, that, that, that's intelligent design because that's intelligent design you actually designed it you can't use the g word <coughs> god because we can't say that word because hey we're we're scientists but well allow aliens to do it uh that's okay it yeah. seems to be a rather a kind of a random preference for one rather than the other but hey yeah. that's what he did yeah. but, but they have a justification which i'll go go into next uh, they have a rebuttal right so when richard dawkins was being asked about this right he, he's there's this very popular documentary called no intelligence allowed and he's being asked about the origin of life. And he said, well, perhaps life was seeded on Earth um, through uh, you know, an advanced civilization which sent down life on Earth. And then he was pushed, well, where did that life come from? And he says, well, that life must have evolved via some sort of Darwinian mechanism. Now, the problem here is he's, fall <laughs> yeah, he's falling into the same thing that he criticized others for in his book, which is... He's referring to something else. So he's saying, okay, so aliens made human beings, right? They, I mean, they, they set, they seeded life on Earth. So those aliens, how did they evolve? How, sorry, how did they come about? They came about via a Darwinian process. But remember, a Darwinian process doesn't explain the origin of life, only the development of life, right? It only, see, this is a distinction which needs to be made. I mean, even the origin of species is not about the origin of species. The origin of species is about the development of species. There's a misunderstanding idea sorry just sorry this whole language of the origin of species you're saying is misleading because it's not the origin the source it is the the ongoing struggle for life survival uh, of, of the fittest etc so it's a misnomer actually isn't yeah. it it's very interesting insight mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. And Darwin was happy to understand these are two different questions, mm. right? Uh, abiogenesis, evolution are two different things, right? right? Chemical evolution and biological evolution are different. Chemical evolution has to take place before you get biological evolution. You don't right. get rocks turning into, you know, tadpoles or whatever, right? You, you don't get inorganic to organic. You, you're going to have to explain how that process came about. So what's interesting is when Richard Dawkins is referring to these aliens, those aliens can, we can explain their development of life using a Darwinian mechanism, fair enough. But then where did the aliens originate from? Well, they must have come through another civilization, civilization B. So it's it's a it's a infinite regress. Now, this idea of um, directed panspermia, which is the official name of this alien theory, right? This idea is accepted as science. Yet, like you just referred to a minute ago, intelligent design, uh, in in terms of not referring to something material like aliens, is not. So why the double standards? Now, what a Darwinist would say is the following. A Darwinist would say, well, the aliens uh, or the advanced civilization are material postulates. They are material, but an intelligent designer may be immaterial. So they would say it fits within methodological naturalism to refer to alien designers, but it doesn't fit with methodological naturalism to refer to an immaterial um, creator. I mean, I, 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 I still don't quite get it. But this 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 insistence on a prejudice in favor of material explanations but i mean there's there's much in life that is not material i mean our consciousnesses are not material yeah. I, I would argue um so there seems to be an insist a dogmatic insistence on ruling out anything material material but i'm wondering what is that a scientific is that an improvement in scientific fact you see what I mean? I mean, what is the science to prove that only material reality is real? I'm, yeah. I'm asking a, a fundamental, I, I know this is a philosophical question, but I'm trying to frame it scientifically so it can fit in to this um, metaphysical naturalist worldview yeah. and, and so it can justify one of its premises. What is the scientific evidence of materialism is my question. Yeah, yeah. and I'll give you an answer, uh, which I've heard from Stephen Carroll right? The physicist, oh, yeah. another new atheist. Yeah. And I want you to tell me <laughs> what you think about this answer. He says it works. He says, when we, when, when we have scientific theories based upon naturalism, based upon methodological naturalism, rockets fly, people get well, medicine works. So that's the answer. How do you deconstruct that, do you think? Well, but, but, well okay, f fine. Medicine works to some extent. But um, firstly, that's not an answer to my question. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that's the two answers. Firstly, it's not an answer to the question. He's not addressed the question. He's not He's addressed it. saying, oh, well, because rocks can fly, uh, rockets, I mean, can fly, therefore, well, sorry, that's not the answer. I was looking for a justification for yep. philosophical naturalism within science itself. And that, and simply saying rockets work is not an answer because there are, and secondly, I, I would respond. Um, there are lots of phenomena which materialism has not explained yep. and simply yep. dismissed. Yep. Dismisses. Yep. Um, I would argue the existence of consciousness is is one of them, but also the uh, and this is much more controversial. It's kind of my my niche thing. But th there's a lot of peer-reviewed evidence now, empirically observed phenomena, where people um, have near-death experiences That's or right. 
experiences right. uh, yeah. under, under surgery, where people, um, uh, throughout any um, expectation this will happen, they find themselves, these are people who are clinically dead even for a brief period, outside of their bodies, looking down from a vantage point on themselves as doctors and nurses and surgeons frantically try and revive this poor body on the slab in the hospital. Now, it's not just they observe it, that they, when they are resuscitated, because obviously they have been, so we know what happened, they're able to accurately report what they saw and heard happen to them. Now, this is physically impossible. I mean, I, I, this is not controversial, by the way. Everyone agrees, believe yeah. or unbelieve it, it's physically impossible for these phenomena to be real. Now, why is this difficult? Because there's tons of peer-reviewed academic research documenting this. These claims to have viewed um, oneself from outside of one's body have been checked and corroborated by third parties. But what I find particularly interesting are those examples where people who've been born blind um, have near-death experiences. They have an out-of-body experience and they view, they see what's going on and accurately report what's going on. And then when they're resuscitated, they're still blind. Or people are born deaf and they're able to hear conversations uh, in their near-death experience which are corroborated and accurate. The, the reputable medical professionals will say, yes, I did say that. And these yeah. things are physically impossible in inverted commas. Now, there have been attempts to explain all this away so that, that the brain's last gasp of whatever, but I find them, I mean, I just find them completely unpersuasive. And they seem to be premised on the idea that our minds are somehow mere byproducts of our brain processes rather than yeah. independent that our consciousness is independent of our physical brains and at some points it literally leaves the physical brain um, in extremis. And this is what the Quran talks about this phenomena as well. You know, at death, God takes our, our souls or our spirits back to him. Um, but so, some others, he, he, he sends them back to their bodies. I was reading this this morning, actually. Um, yeah. An extraordinary um, a co commentary on exactly what uh, contemporary psychological medical research is uncovering from the, these yeah. experiences. So, um, the, the, two examples. One is to answer your about Carol point. He doesn't answer the question. And secondly, so, materialist science is not omnicompetent. There's lots of things, and there's just two examples that it hasn't yeah. explained. Absolutely. So that's the way. That's the exact way I would do it. Um, although I would probably just dismiss the uh, dismiss the entire argument essentially by saying you just haven't answered the question and then there's all these problems that you spoke about and i'm glad you spoke about ndes because they're, yeah. they're not really highlighted and i hope you get an academic speaking about this i mean uh, journals like lancet have covered ndes ndes are no joke <laughs> NDEs. Oh, no, 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 i mean i, I google this the, 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 some some mainstream universities in america university of minnesota i think there are peer-reviewed academic papers published on their official website by professors of psychology and so on that discuss the nature of people who are born blind and deaf having near-death experiences and observing themselves outside their own bodies accurately and they evaluate the long academic session looking at all the pros and cons it comes to the conclusion that these experiences are real they're objective yeah. they're not yeah. hallucinations of the mind and that's the yeah. conclusion they reach now who's trumpeting this uh, th this research no one is because it goes against the the spirit of our age where only material causes are acceptable De definitely and what's interesting is these philosophical blunders that these darwinists are making and athe new atheists are making they are not always corrected by philosophers of science who know better so despite the fact that, you know, Carol is making these terrible arguments, what you'll find is respectable philosophers like Stephen Law, 
they will not make corrections of these new atheists the way that they should do. Now, there's an interesting um, interview online in which Stephen Law and Richard Dawkins, they're sharing a stage. And Richard Dawkins is being asked a philosophical question, something David Hume couldn't answer, which is about how do you justify induction? You can't justify induction using induction. And he literally says, science works. And then he says, bitches. <laughs> and everyone starts laughing. Um, just a very crude answer. And Stephen Law is next to him. And he just, you know, you can hear him if you slow down the, the video. He's basically saying well, that's induction or, you know, just under his breath. And he just carries on. Well, here is an academic letting another academic have a free pass on something which is philosophically absurd. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, he's a new atheist and he's a new atheist. Well, he's an atheist. So, you know, what we find is that when it comes to people like Sean Carroll, when it comes to people like uh, Richard Dawkins, only a few people like Massimo Piglucci, Thomas Nagel, Michael Roos are willing to come out and say these guys are coming up with absurdities and none of these arguments actually make sense. And what's, what's also interesting is there is an environment, and this is something I want to cover right near the end, which, where, where, right. the section where, where I ask you to um, cover, is Darwinism just a theory? There is an environment in which academics are not free to criticize Darwinism, and we need to talk about that as well, because people have been penalized simply for questioning the idea that the king, you know, it, it okay. reigns supreme. Before we come to that, I, I did. Well, I had a second question, and you asked me to remind you if you forgot. And it, it, um, I gave you two huge questions. I should have just given one at a time. The second sure. question was: Many Muslims are very keen on intelligent design. Uh, I've already mentioned Stephen Mayer's uh, famous book, *Return of the God Hypothesis*. Should Muslims just uh, uncritically support these Christian-led movements? Because it's because I mean, Mayer's a Christian, and other people, B, he's a Christian, yeah. and so on. Uh, and not all Christians. You mentioned Dembski, I think. Uh, um, yeah. Not Dembski, um, but Belinsky. Belinsky, uh, yeah. Who's a, a kind of a skeptic type person, yeah, yeah. a yeah. skeptic. But I mean, usually they are Christians. Should Muslims just sign up to this project or are there problems with it? From an Islamic point of view specifically, I mean. Sure. Um, so obviously I have disagreements with uh, some Muslims who I mm -hmm. have a lot of respect for, um, who don't support intelligent design, uh, like Shreb Ahmed Malik, a friend, a very good friend. Um, mm -hmm we don't agree on intelligent design he, he doesn't subscribe to it but i'll just give some of the reasons why i, I think we should as muslims support it ah. firstly it would be the genetic fallacy to um you know look at the fact that there's a lot of christians who are behind um you know in intelligent design theory or they, they are obviously not using christianity but the people behind um you know, um, th th this particular movement, many of them are Christians, Philip Johnson being um, a prime example. So it doesn't matter um, where the idea is coming from, it's whether the idea is correct. So that's that's the first point. The second point to keep in mind is the Muslim world has not interacted with Darwinian theory for as long as the Christian world has. We have to keep that in mind. So um, the Ottomans did begin to interact with them and their empire collapsed. But the Christian world has gone through that resistance process. So you had um, Christian versions of Harun Yahya. You had Christian versions of, you know, uh, basically arguments against Darwinism. Some worked, some didn't work that well. So we should be looking at how Christians dealt with it because they are essentially on the same battlefield that we are. And we are on the same side. Um, they want to defend on a minimalistic point, uh, from a minim minimalistic point of view, that God is not undermined through biological sciences. 
So we all agree, Muslims, Christians, we all agree that we cannot allow um, biology to be used to promote atheism, which is what's currently happening on a large scale. Look at famous TV programs like The Big Bang Theory, things on Netflix, uh, mm. you know, science popularizers like Richard Dawkins. It's there in the culture and it's leading people to atheism. So that's a minimal uh, yeah. commitment that we have. Okay. Now, when it comes to some Muslims come up with objections like, well, some intelligent design propo uh, proponents believe in uh, universal common ancestry. That's irrelevant, right? Because some don't. Intelligent design uh, as a theory does not commit itself to universal common ancestry or separate ancestry. So that, again, argument doesn't actually work. Um, also, we have to keep in mind that theologically, uh, Muslims and Christians have always made arguments for God. And the design argument is being one of the best arguments um, that's been used. And using design has been denied because of, you know, the Darwinian claims on biology. So mm. intelligent design will give us that ability to use, um, uh, you know, biology to make arguments for the divine. Now, there is obviously a gap because in intelligent design can only refer to an, in, you know, intelligent cause. And we have to, you know, uh, shorten that gap and explain why we believe this is actually God. Um, so I believe from a from a purely pragmatic point of view, we should definitely be looking at the Christian world. We should definitely be looking at how they dealt with uh, Darwinism, which things worked, which things didn't work. And intelligent design as a movement has done something which, if, if we are to say it's a Christian-led initiative, it has done something that the Muslim world has not done. The Muslim world has not penetrated uh, uh, academia. Um, we don't have atheists um, you know, promoting something uh, like an intelligent design version that Muslims have come up with, um, but they are uh, promoting, uh, you know, and they are accepting that the intelligent design theory as it currently is being propagated uh, by the likes of Discovery Institute is a real challenge to Darwinism. So mm -hmm. in a way, the way I see it is that why do we have to come up with it if they've already come up with it? They've made inroads that we haven't actually made and what we should be doing is we should be supporting them and we should be helping them and we should be working with them hand in hand. And I don't believe um, there is um, I don't believe there is sufficient refutations of us working uh, or subscribing to intelligent design. I, I don't believe the arguments um, are, are solid. On that uh, I think well, one of the about it, this is a, a book by um, uh, Shoaib Ahmed Malik, uh, Islam and Evolution, Al Ghazali and the Modern Evolutionary Paradigm. And there's a, uh, he's discussed this on, on one interview on uh, blogging theology. He's a professor of science. I think he's a biochemist, I think. Um, he's also now very much a theologian uh, slash philosopher as well in the Islamic uh, Ghazalian uh, Asharite, I should say, I should say the Asharite. Uh, tradition. But one of the arguments um, that he presents in this book, and I think he has a point, is that if, if one, if ID proponents like um, Stephen Meyer uh, in this book focus on the idea of irreducible complexity, the idea that something is so unlikely to be reduced by, by you know, natural process, therefore God, um, the danger is, if, if I understand Malik correctly, is that if science does one day understand the uh, the causality, the secondary mechanisms that came to bring uh, um, something about, then it would is a sophisticated form of the god of the gaps. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And uh, people like Malik seem to say that everything in the universe he is intelligent. He does believe in intelligent design, by the way. Of course, uh, Malik, of course, yeah. Not yeah. in the American, not in the American slash Christian sense. 
he believes that everything in the universe is intelligent design, whether it be a rock, the humble rock, a tree, DNA, the laws of physics, the cosmos itself. And thus he says it's a trap to get him, to get so fixated on these hyper marvelous phenomena, which today's science can't understand. Uh, and, and, you know, you mentioned abiogenesis, you know, maybe in the future, the tiny little steps leading from the inorganic through chemistry through, you know, you might be able to have a narrative that kind of explains this. And at that point that then God becomes redundant, the argument will be. And so it's, it's a trap waiting to happen if we rely on this applied God of the gaps theory. And mm -hmm. so he, said he does believe in intelligent design, but the Quran itself speaks about the, you know, God sending the wind and the rain, you know, the wind and the rain are created by God. Even though science can talk about the secondary mechanisms, it doesn't mean that God didn't do it because he is the ground of the being. He, he makes it happen. He creates the physics for it to happen and so on and so on and so on. We don't need this kind of obscure or look at that special phenomena, therefore God argument for as a basis of intelligent design. Everything yeah. is designed by God. Now, if I've understood Malik correctly, that was seen, to, and he claims that's an Islamic argument based on the Quran, rather than the Christian one, which seems to be based on the God of the gaps, if I understood him right. Yeah. Um, so, firstly, that book is fantastic. Um, I recommend everyone reads it. It, it. It's it's really a landmark, and I believe there's not enough people who know uh, about, mashallah, um, you know, the book and the the works that he's been involved in. And in fact, um, it's just one of the many things that he's done. Um, I would agree with him a hundred percent in terms of his underlying metaphysic that he lays out, right? That a rock, wind, whatever, we don't need to use this argument to believe in design. We believe in design as from a base point of view. So I don't disagree with that. Yeah. Where he's referring to this idea that, well, in the future this could potentially happen, that is a possibility. I'm not denying. And this is why, I mean, his his reasons for not accepting intelligent design actually really well thought out um so that danger is always there that okay so when it comes to the you know the mechanisms of the flagellum <laughs> you know we have this nanotechnology irreducibly complex because all the parts have to be in place for it to work like a mousetrap you know all the michael behe good stuff the darwin's black box however what if there's a you know we can come up with this um this background scaffolding that we didn't know about and that argument would fall apart that is potentially true that could happen but what's the worst case scenario all it would simply mean is that that argument would be invalid for that particular organism that we're looking at however if we leave things in their current state we are leaving the biological domain to be dominated by darwinists and they're using the mantle of science to basically say there is no god and they're using biological arguments to try and show that there's no god they're mixing biology and, and, and philosophy and theology and making all sorts of arguments about the appendix and junk dna and all these types of things so from a sociological perspective from an impact perspective we cannot leave the battlefield unattended we cannot simply um accept because even if you speak to stephen myers paul nelson um, you know michael behe or these christians I don't think they would disagree with what Shoaib is saying in terms of the background metaphys metaphysics because they would believe in God even without intelligent design theory. But they believe in the same thing that I believe that from a pragmatic point of view, if Darwinists are using bio biology to take people to atheism, we should use biology to make biological arguments because the same thing that is 
uh, that could happen to us could happen to them. So they're basically saying, well, when it comes to this particular thing, um, you know, why is it that um, this particular organism um, doesn't have um, th these particular traits, which it would actually help it survive in this environment? It's actually mismatched or whatever it is. They would come up with their answers, but they could be wrong in their answers. So they could be wrong in the future. So, for example, the idea of Hox genes or the way they try and explain orphan, uh, orphan, um, uh, orphan genes or other taxonomically restricted genes, they could come up with hypotheses which are wrong. So we can come up with hypotheses which are wrong. But I do not believe we can leave the battlefield um, you know, un unattended and leave it up to them. Because if we left it, the same thing that's been happening over the last couple of decades would continue, which is lots of Muslim students, lots of Christian students and, and students of other um, theistic persuasions would end up going towards atheism because the only loudspeaker in the scientific domain are the Darwinists. It's a, yeah, it's an interesting response. Uh, I mean, one, one very popular, increasingly popular Islamic uh, theological response these days, it's not new, of course, is the argument from contingency, um, yeah. the, the contingency of, of existence itself and the, 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 the invalidity of the idea of infinite regress. And there has to be some uncaused cause um, to sustain and bring into existence the contingent series of cause and effect. Um, and, and so there's kind of t two levels of discourse. There's the, the secondary causation of methodological naturalism, which is then handed over to the, to the scientists to do as they please, because it, it has no theological consequences. It doesn't matter what they say or do. It's all created by God in the primary sense that he is behind the scenes, if you like, uh, directing it, managing it, causing it, uh, keeping it in being ontologically. But the, the, the scientists are looking at the secondary you know within this dunya perspective and so that there is you know the emphasis there is people keeping in their respective lanes so scientists do your science a la methodological and naturalism and theologians can say yeah you can do your science we are now looking at the bigger picture and we are saying the metaphysical underpinnings and context for all this and now that that, that was, some might say that was a a, a secure argument against the God of the gaps accusations, because it doesn't really matter what scientists discover in inverted commas. It's all good because it's all contingent and it has a necessary being sustaining in existence. Well, wouldn't that be as a kind of um, an a priori way of dealing with all of this issue, be a much securer way? And uh, you mentioned sociologically, but I mean spiritually, because yeah. it doesn't, science then has its domain and, yeah. and theology has its bigger domain, which can encompass science quite comfortably then no i I, th I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense i don't think people are mature enough to understand that point which is why we have to actually fight these battles because from a purely philosophical point of view darwinism should not even be a problem and if we go back to hamza's original paper um you know that original paper would be enough you wouldn't need any more published works but of course people are not that sophisticated and a lot of people are simple and the Darwinists have very simple arguments and they try and bring people around. Um, but if you are to come up with an absolute watertight um, argument, um, like, for example, the contingency argument, you know, you don't need anything else. But the fact is, we do sometimes have to refer to NDEs, to the moral argument, to a design argument. So we have to not only look at what is intellectually satisfying, but we also have to look at what pragmatically is going to work. And I think that's where me and Shweb have a difference he's looking at it purely from is it logically uh, sufficient the point that he's making and it is it actually is 
But the point I'm making is it may be logically sufficient, but pragmatically is it enough? And I don't think so. Okay, that's true. I mean, uh, if people want to look at the contingency argument in a very popular, well-written uh, uh, book uh, by Hamza Zoltzis, there we are, uh, The Divine Reality, God, Islam, and the Mirage of Atheism. This is the new revised edition. Uh, he explains a great deal. Uh, many of these issues, uh, not so much evolution, but um, yeah. more philosophically, um, yeah. particularly the contingency argument. Um, what he writes is quite quite powerful. Another one of my favorite books is this one by a guy called John Lennox. He's, he's a recently retired professor of mathematics at Oxford yeah. University, very familiar with science as well, called Cosmic Chemistry, Do God and Science uh, Mix. Uh, and um, there's a a number of very eminent scientists on the back who who like the book uh, as well. Um, uh, is the rigorous pursuit of scientific knowledge really compatible with a sincere faith in God? Uh, the short answer is yes. The long answer is the book. Um, and um, I think he's he's very sympathetic. Well, he is very sympathetic to intelligent design, actually, himself, uh, John Lennox. Yeah, and John Lennox is actually one of the reasons I believe Richard Dawkins doesn't like to debate anybody because <laughs> if you watch the debates between Lennox, who is, um, I believe, a professor of mathematics at Oxford, yeah. and Richard Dawkins, so they obviously must have passed each other at the corridors. Um, sure. These were some debates which Dawkins engaged in many years ago, maybe 15 years ago or something, mm-hmm. um, 10, 15 years ago, and he stopped Right. He stopped and he just went and, you know, did his own sort of monologues. Um, And then now recently he spoke to Dennis Noble. So Lennox, you can see why, you know, he's created that 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 scare in Dawkins to publicly put these ideas forward, because um, I don't believe um, he he is confident in his ideas. And that's why he doesn't you know, he'll go and speak to Piers Morgan. He'll go and speak to um, Muslim school children. You know, happily go do those things. But when it comes to actually academics, um, you know, he doesn't want to do that. Have, have you tried to debate him? I mean, would he debate you, do you think? Um, I don't think there's a chance because um, I'm not on the radar, but um, I was very happy to see Dennis Noble um, actually engage with him. And interestingly, I wanted to say about Noble that um, not only is it that we have here an example of an a, a academic, a secular academic who is uh, open to, um, you know, criticizing Darwinism. Um, in my uh, sort of email correspondence with him, I wanted to... Uh, just send him something spiritual because he wrote the book The Music of Life and he's all about music and he's all about biology and he's all about, you know, philosophy and he's very, very touchy guy. And I just spoke about, um, I, I sent him an email and I sent him a beautiful, beautiful um, a re- uh, a call to prayer, uh, Azan. And um, he replied back that, you know, he basically found it beautiful or he loved it. I don't remember what he said. But, you know, academics like this are accessible. Academics like this are are willing Mm -hmm. to engage. And it's Mm -hmm. academics like this that we need to basically show to the Muslim community and the Christian community. Look, this is what academics are like. They're like Michael Ruth. They're like Elliot Sober. They're like Dennis Noble. They're like Masut Ashinai. They're like Lynn Margulis. They're like these people who are staunch in their atheism, are staunch in their belief in biological evolution and, and Darwin being right, but they do not use it in a way that's theologically toxic, in a way that's theologically incoherent, in a way that's philosophically nonsensical. They're willing to understand the limits. They're willing to understand this certain presuppositions. And as Michael Ruth says, faith involved. And often people are scared of using the word faith on the other side, the atheistic side, but you cannot escape that faith. You cannot build something philosophically um, and justify everything, or else you'd have an infinite regress. I mean, Aristotle spoke about this, right? You have to go back to some sort of foundation. 
Mm. So, I mean, I think the last couple of questions are about the problems with Darwinism and is Darwinism more than a scientific theory? I suppose you would say, well, wouldn't it depend on the practitioner, the, the, the scientist who was articulating it? Some are, are weaponizing it uh, and, and, and morphing it into scientism and using it to bash believers with. But others are, uh, you know, much more humble and willing to acknowledge the role of faith and, uh, and are not really interested in these metaphysical questions. Yeah, absolutely. And a, a scientist or a philosopher or an academic who is not dogmatically married um, to new atheism, they'd be willing to accept criticism. They'd be willing to accept the presupposition. So, for example, um, I had a discussion with Professor Jeremy Pritchard at the University of Birmingham, and the discussion was, does uh, evolution undermine God? Now, I made the argument, I that it does not undermine God. I spoke about Darwin, Nick Spencer, methodological naturalism, philosophical naturalism, presuppositions, all these things. He made his uh, point. We both agreed. We actually agreed that Darwinism, uh, sorry, Darwin does, uh, Darwin's theory does not undermine God. So you get yeah. academics who are willing to say that. Yeah. And other academics, for example, if somebody was to say, well, the tree of life is a fact of, uh, of nature and it's undeniable. And if we look at it from a philosophy or biology point of view, um, there are three fundamental assumptions to the tree of life which are not really spoken about. The first is that the tree of life doesn't explain the origin of life, it simply explains the development of life if life was already there. Secondly, the origin of life is linked to the development of life. So there's two other uh, assumptions there. The first assumption is of origination probabilities, which is the tree of life assumes, if you imagine from zero to one, right, so zero, no chance, one, 100%. The tree of life makes the assumption that life is extremely improbable, but not impossible. So we're close to zero, but we're not at zero. That's the origination probability. The second probability is the transition probability, which is anything can evolve to anything else over millions of years. All you need is time. That transition probability is close to one. And Darwin spoke about uh, you know, how things can basically transform and they're flexible. So these three things, the the assumption about the origin of life the assumption i'm saying because there's no evidence that we have currently that you can get from organic inorganic to organic that's an assumption secondly transition probabilities being close to one origination probabilities being being close to zero none of these things can be proven and none of these things are justifiable they are assumptions that they have made mm -hmm. and currently as it stands if someone was to challenge the tree of life using these three um, a decent academic who is not dogmatically married to Darwinism would say, fair enough, I get these points, these points are well understood. But the Darwinists would outright deny that these are assumptions. They would outright deny. They would say these are, these are proven, right? Um, if you were to listen to some science popularizers, they would talk about the origin of life as if the origin of life was solved decades ago. Yet we get academics like Eugene Conin, we get the Miller-Urey experiment, we get all these academics and, and experts and what they've done and what we find from them is actually we haven't solved anything. We don't even understand what was happening in the beginning, right? I mean, currently, just to give you an example, Paul, I was talking to the Muslim academic Fareed Khan, who, uh, mashallah, he has a PhD from Cambridge and um, I've, um, you know, interacted with him on several occasions um he said to me something very interesting he said 
proteins folding is a process that we see before our eyes, yet we cannot fully understand it. So how can we speak so dogmatically about something like the origin of the universe? Or to extrapolate further, the origin of life. So there has to be some epistemic humility here. Humility. Right? But it, yeah. I, I think this, this is the key point, really. It's, it's such a, 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 a very human psychological point. We're dealing here, ultimately, I think, in, in, in people who are very humble before the mystery of existence, the universe itself, and the mystery of life, and those who are arrogant. Uh, and, and I think it is almost a dispositional difference uh, that it manifests itself in hard-nosed atheism or in humility. Now, humility is more compatible, I would suggest, with science anyway, because that's how we discover things, by being open to new possibilities. Uh, arrogance isn't, because it dogmatically holds on to what we think we know now and refuses to countenance, refuses to be open to the possibilities the, of new discoveries, new understanding, new paradigms, paradigm shifts, as Thomas Kuhn called them. And so it seems to me humility, not only is it more pleasing uh, in terms of spirituality, but also it's more scientific in that it helps us to be open to the mystery of life. So maybe this, uh, it, on one level, this is part of the solution to the problem of why some scientists are like that and others are like that. It's because of their mental dispositions. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 think, I think that's a fair point. Um, another thing to keep in mind is academically, um, you know, we have to have that freedom of speech in science. We have to have the ability to have scientists comfortable criticizing ideas. That doesn't exist currently as we stand. So, for example, there's, there are many prominent scientists who speak about this environment. Like for, Thomas Nagel calls it, people have been browbeaten into accepting the, the current status quo. Uh, Masatoshi Nai, uh, someone who is an, a heavyweight when it comes to popula population genetics, uh, Japanese scientist, you know, he says Darwin is a god in biology. You cannot challenge uh, Darwin. You know, Lynn Margulis says, you know, history is going to judge neo-Darwinism as an Anglo-Saxon sect. So, you know, we get all these scientists speaking about this environment. Um, and what we need to realize is they're also human beings. So these scientists who want to use science and its mantle to promote atheism they are going to do things similar to religious people they are going to go on witch hunts they are going to treat darwinism as a religion um there's there's one book i wanted to speak about which is michael Roos's excellent book um darwinism as religion and he basically argues that darwinism from its inception to today has acted as a secular religious religious perspective as a actual religion so we have to keep this in mind it's not just science right there's way more than science if we look at it historically social darwinism and how it is used to justify imperialism and then currently evolutionary psychology with all of its you know um just so stories and 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 documentaries that you see with all these ideas of okay color evolution was due to this particular thing that happened in the paleolithic era all this stuff is just completely unjustifiable it's because they start off with the assumption essentially of naturalism they turn the assumption into a conclusion they work backwards and they jerry all the data and what that leads to is a suffocation for the the academic environment that you actually need for scientists to challenge some things which they need to challenge and paul i just want to give you one example because um, uh, as you can imagine, I have a lot to say, but I just want to give you one example of how this is terrible, terrible for science. Junk DNA was used as an argument against God for many years, right? Philip Kitcher, uh, you know, he said if uh, most of our genome is junk and therefore God needs to go back to school, just ridiculous things like this, right? For decades. And it was discouraged to actually look into 
junk DNA, right, as, as something that may be functional. Now, on my website, um, I've actually, that was my thesis at Birkbeck. I actually did it on junk DNA. What is, your, what is your website? Can you just give us the title uh, of your yeah, website? So it's, just, it's just my name. It's my name.com, right? Right. So okay. if you put in my name and then, uh, for, so this is, um, and again, I, you know, peer review all of that. It was peer reviewed. It's been published. I got a distinction for this, right? Um, published as in, uh, published as in it was, uh, it was accepted. And I'm going to be, inshallah, um, I'm looking for a science journal to actually, actually publish this in. Um, so in this paper, uh, you will see all the references there. You'll see all the arguments there. What you find is that junk DNA was not accepted, was, was accepted categorically, but science should never be categorical, should never be categorical. In 2012, the Encyclopedia of DNA Elements by, uh, it was led by Francis Collins, a Christian and Darwinist. Um, he basically showed um, with the other researchers that junk DNA, these sequences, were not actually junk. They were non-coding proteins and they were actually functional. They actually had purpose. And us making that paradigm shift was going to have lots of non-epistemic implications for health. It was going to help us understand diabetes and other types of diseases. So for many, many years, Darwinists suffocated um, the environment so that junk DNA was accepted as junk. Yet later on, when that assumption was challenged, we understood that junk is not junk, it's actually functional and it has these amazing traits. It switches genes on and off. And, and it, I mean, if if one was to actually look at, um, or if one was to come up with an example, it's like me telling you, Paul, just down the road, there's a junkyard, don't go in there. It's all a bunch of broken up cars and this type of thing. You one day decide to go against my advice. I'm the scientific advisor, I'm, I'm creating the environment. I'm I'm the one with the research funding. I'm I'm you know in control. You decide to go there, get a screwdriver, break the lock, walk in. What are you gonna see? You're gonna see diamonds. You're gonna see gold. You're gonna see you know uh, gems, rubies. You're gonna see these things. That's what we've discovered with junk DNA. Junk DNA is a treasure trove, and it was denied to us epistemically mm. well, because what, 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 of Darwinian assumptions. But what, what I like about it is almost a parallel example. I mentioned earlier on about. Um, uh, Shoei Malik's argument about the god of the gaps. So you have these irre alleged irreducibly complex mechanisms that prove God, allegedly. One day science will show that this can all be explained naturalistic. This is the atheist version of the god, the, the atheism of the gaps. So we have junk DNA, allegedly. This proves that God doesn't exist. But of course, this atheist belief, like the, you know, the ID mirror equivalent, is open to refutation and hey yeah. presto <laughs> collins the geneticist who happens to be a christian by the way not an id guys but anyway, i'm not going to go there he's a christian Anti -ID, yeah. Uh, yeah anyway the point is that he he said actually it, it's a gold mine the, 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 this junk dna has lots of purpose and functionality that we just didn't yeah. see therefore therefore atheism is refuted one could argue using the same kind of insistent logic that uh, the opposition also uses. Uh, it's, it's a very juicy, rich irony that the God of the gaps argument is the atheism of the gaps and can be yeah. actually give an example of the atheism of the gaps there. That's a that's a brilliant point actually, and um, I thought it is, it is rather clever. But... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's logically symmetrical, and it's it's, it's interesting. Um, I mean, you're a philosopher, so you you know how to do this, right? You know how to log logically make things symmetrical. Um, and what's interesting is many times, many times with these uh, Darwinian arguments, um, all you simply need to do is take their argument and then logically invert it and say, well, what would be the opposite? So, for example, 
here we spoke about junk DNA and then, you know, it, it, the previous and, the year, atheism, and then that being refuted, therefore atheism itself exactly. is exactly because it's using their own, they've been hoist by their own picards, so to speak. That's the right yeah. expression, yeah, exactly. And the, the same sort of thing can happen at a micro level when we're speaking about DNA sequences. So, for example, um, in one of my debates, um, you know, th this Darwinist was making an argument that, well, why are humans and, and, and chimps so similar from a DNA perspective? And I said, well, they're similar anatomically, so what would you expect? <laughs> of course, genetically, they're going to be similar, but then you can ask a bunch of questions. You can basically say, well, um, okay, so if the uh, if the sequences are similar by whatever percentage, and the way the percentages are worked out are quite controversial, but anyway, if, if the percentages um, are, like, what would you expect them to be if it, a separate ancestry was to be a hypothesis? And... Um, from what I remember, he says something like randomness. So I mean, that, that's just that's just not an answer. But then the other the other thing to keep in mind is, well, at what percentage point would you say, okay, now it's common ancestry rather than separate ancestry? And then the other obvious point is, well, for you to believe two two things are similar and therefore they have a, a common ancestor, you are basically making the assumption about transitions that mm -hmm. things are able to actually transfer yeah. from one form to another so many times um what you just did there was a brilliant argument that's a tool that anybody can do use use the very same arguments that they're using and change the variables and give it back to them and say okay now you tell me what's going on here so atheism of the gaps is is a brilliant way of you know counting yeah. god of the gaps, god of the gaps we, we can do we say we were atheism of the gaps next time they deploy the argument i, I think that the very last thing then uh, if i ask you, you you're the author of a forthcoming book a failed hypothesis. What is this failed hypothesis? So this book, uh, inshallah, is going to be published. Uh, I don't want to give a date because I keep postponing it. Um, it's it's basically going to challenge the scientific pretensions of atheism. It's right. going to challenge the way that Darwinism has been used by Darwinists to buttress atheism. It's going to cover consciousness. It's going to cover many of these. So, so basically, you can imagine the divine reality um, except that rather than focusing on philosophy, it's got all these scientific arguments um, that Darwinists are using and then actually challenging them. Um, so this book is going to be published by myself, uh, Hamza Sotsis, and there, it, there is an academic um, uh, who got his PhD from Cambridge and actually was a research associate or some sort of research post at Oxford University. That's Dr. Tariq Ali. Um, and then the preface is going to be by uh, Dr. Fareed Khan, who again, I believe he's still, you'll find him on the Cambridge website, as in he's, he's, he's still linked to Cambridge University. So um, what we want to do with this book is we want to expand the possibilities for the, for the Muslim audiences, is, is primarily for the Muslim uh, people, but obviously right. non-Muslims can read it too. Um, and it's to basically show that science doesn't undermine Islam theologically, it doesn't under, undermine God uh, theologically, and also just opens up the mind to many of these things that we've been discussing today. Naturalism, metaphysical naturalism, philosophical naturalism, then all of these presuppositions and um, assumptions behind Darwinism, um, which people don't know about. And the reason why it's taking so long is, as you know, whenever you put something out there in such a contentious environment, such as we have, every single point you could get refuted on. So yeah. I want to make sure, inshallah, that the book is coming out in a way that's solid, that no academic and no Darwinist and nobody can basically, you know, pick bones with it.
Okay, well, that's fine. Inshallah, I look forward to reading it very much. And one day, hopefully, I uh, invite you back to talk about this book. I'm sure it'll be of extreme interest to, to everyone. And uh, just to go over those books that I think we both um, uh, approve of, um, uh, Islam and Evolution, Al-Ghazali in the Modern Evolutionary Paragraph by Professor Ahmed Malik, uh, a brilliant uh, book. I do recommend that highly. Uh, this one, Stephen Mayer, Return of the God Hypothesis. Oh, boy, he's, he's been on Blogging Theology. Yes, he has. Yeah. You know, Blogging Theology, Return of the God Hypothesis. Three scientific discoveries that reveal the mind behind the universe. Uh, absolutely uh, fascinating uh, book. Uh, I do recommend it. Whether or not one agrees with it is a really thought-provoking read. Um, John Lennox, uh, Professor Oxford in Mathematics, and he knows about science. Do God and science mix? Short answer is yes. The long answer is you have to read all the answers in there. And of course, this um, book, The Divine Reality by Hamza Zortzis, God, Islam, and the Mirage of Atheism, the newly revised edition. And this is more philosophical work um, rather than scientific. So he looks at, uh, well, many things, but the contingency argument, particularly, uh, and many of the arguments that atheists present philosophically, he challenges them and I think offers compelling uh, rebuttals for those arguments in favor of theism, particularly Islam, actually. Um, yeah. a, a very good and book. The fifth, the fifth book that we spoke about is Darwinian Fairy Tales. Mm -hmm. um, this is by David Stove, who was a philosopher of science. And what he basically does in this book is he challenges, challenges the selfish gene idea um, mm -hmm. and many of the sociological ideas of these uh, Darwinists. Um, and he's a heavyweight when it comes to the philosophy of science. Sadly, he committed suicide before this book was published. Um, but uh, as a thinker, he is somebody that's really not highlighted enough. So I'd highly recommend that book as well. Gosh. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Sabah Akhmed, for your valuable time, the extraordinary contributions you're making to this ongoing debate and upholding the, the Muslim understanding, the theistic understanding of, of uh, these issues. I uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Sabah. Jazakallah, until next time, bye-bye. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.